Hello everyone and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Today is an extra special episode because I have a hero of mine, a commentary legend, Nick Harris, the voice of MotoGP on the other end of the line. Nick, welcome to the programme. Uh, you're very welcome, especially in these times. It's uh, good to have a good chat, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, for the benefit of our, our listeners, can you give a, a summary of, of your journey in racing and, and all the amazing things you got you got involved with during your career? Uh, yeah, I was a, yeah uh, left school, 1-0 level, uh, worked in a solicitor's office, not very happy, sports shop, uh, went to the local uh, free newspaper, started out the Oxford Journal. Uh, I was distribution manager, started writing some articles for them, uh, got bigger and bigger, uh, got involved with Radio Oxford, uh, covering uh, Oxford United. Job came up at Motorcycle News, didn't think I was qualified to get it, did get it. And that's really where the journey started, way, way back in oh, 1975. Motorcycle News, then to Motorcycle Weekly, covering the Grand Prix. Motorcycle Weekly uh, went bust, uh, set up my own company, uh, moved on from there, PR, uh, stuff for BBC Radio, Radio 2 as it was in uh, those days, uh, more and more involved with the likes of Barry Sheen uh, and others who uh, got me jobs with uh, Channel 9 in Australia. Uh, and other television companies um, and then uh, I had a PR company as well uh, started with uh, the, the Silverstone Armstrong team with the la- Scottish lads two very talented Scottish lads Neil McKenzie and Donnie McLeod they, they taught me a lot about PR I was lucky then to get involved uh, with Rothmans again from my local uh, radio uh, experience really because uh, the top man at Rothmans UK also was the Reading reporter, the BBC Radio Oxford. So that that helped me get get my foot in the door. Honda uh, uh, UK to start with, but exciting times because uh, obviously at the TT with Joey Dunlop and all the British meetings with the likes of uh, Roger Marshall and uh, Roger Burnett. And then Rothmans moved into uh, Grand Prix racing. And, and I got heavily involved, uh, first of all, with Freddie Spencer when Freddie did the double in uh, 85 um, and carried on through uh, Wayne Gardner winning the World Championship in 87. I was the media manager for the team. They then switched in uh, 93 from two wheels to four wheels. They asked me if I'd like to join them. I thought it would be a good experience. I've always been a, a, a motorcycle man, but uh, mm-hmm. I went to Formula One for six years with Williams, which was an incredible experience. Uh, just the third Grand Prix as the media manager at Senna was good. I think it's an anniversary tomorrow, isn't it? 26 years. Is tomorrow. it really? I didn't realise that. May the first, yeah. God. So obviously it's a day I would never forget. No. Uh, uh, handling uh, everything to do, to do with that. Then we won two world championships with Damon Hill and uh, Jack Villeneuve. Rothmans uh, pulled out at the end of 1999. I was incredibly lucky. Uh, I'd known Dawn, who uh, were the, 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 the rights holders to MotoGP. And what I'd done, to be honest with you, though I'd covered all the Formula One races, I still went to as many uh, motorcycle Grand Prix as possible for BBC Radio more than uh, anybody else okay. and that, that kept my, my foot wow. in the door and in 2000 they asked me if I would uh, join them to be the commentator, the main commentator, host all the press conferences and look after the British media and uh, it all, <laughs> that carried on to 2017 when uh, I think they decided I was getting a bit old which was probably fair enough and uh, the incredible journey hasn't come to an end but the travelling journey, 38 years on the road, came to an end. Well, wow. in a nutshell, really. Yeah. <laughs> you must have an incredibly patient wife, Nick, with that sort of travel uh, schedule. Well, uh, I have an amazing wife and daughter. <laughs> uh, um, because I was away from home so much, especially uh, when I was doing Formula One and the motorcycle Grand Prix. But in recent years, when I when I started doing uh, the motorcycle Grand Prix, what was there ten races mm-hmm. all in Europe, and uh, when, when the year I finished, there was eighteen, nineteen races, a lot of foreign travel, 
and you're away from home an awful lot of the time you've got to have a very solid relationship and an understanding relationship uh, back home and uh, I, I saw it happen so many times relationships breaking down with people you're in this uh, mm. adrenaline fueled atmosphere I mean it's a very exciting world to, to be involved in and matters at home can become uh, a little matter of fact and uh, you don't, don't pay enough attention to them I won't forget 94 my first year in Formula 1 I left home living in one house it was the Barcelona Grand Prix just after the death actually there in Senna and I came home uh, Damon Hill had won the race and I was living in a new house and my wife Sheila had done absolutely oh my. all the arrangements and everything and I remember my my final year at the dawn of Matt Burt I was working with just couldn't believe it that Sheila for once in 38 years of forgotten to pack my shirts and he just would not believe that <laughs> Sheila packed my shirts every time <laughs> I, I went where I went away yeah without that packing either you're a single guy or you've got to have an incredible family around you and I've got that with Sheila and my daughter Sophie oh what a what a pair of superstars to, to, to keep <laughs> keep you on the keep you on the road now um I, as I mentioned when when I got in touch to ask if you would kindly come on to the show um, your book, um, Never Say Never, the sort of part memoir, part history of the you know, Grand Prix paddock, one of my favourite stories from it is your f- very first um, dispatch for Motorcycle News with your new Motorcycle News jacket going to Mizano. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, that story and some of the, 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 the goings on and that sort of first experience of the Grand Prix paddock? Yes, certainly. It was uh, 1976, mm-hmm. and it was the first uh, road racing job I did for Motorcycle News. I'd gone there the, the previous November, and I was doing the British Trials Championship testing 125 Hondas, and, and general, not dog's body, but a general reporter. That's, that's what the job was. But uh, John Brown had gone to Daytona, and so they needed somebody to go to Misano, and they asked me to go. And in those days, there was no pre-season testing. The mm-hmm. riders either went to... Daytona, or they went to Misano, and I was duly dispatched to uh, uh, Misano. Uh, you know, first time I'd been abroad on my own. First time I'd driven a hire car abroad. I'd uh, <laughs> fly into Milan. Didn't have any luggage. It had been lost. Drove to uh, Misano, the Abner's Hotel. Matt Ian Mackay became a great, great friend of mine from a glorious part of Scotland. He uh, lives up in the Kyle of Tongue, which I visited many times. Oh wow! And um, yeah, the first uh, Max said he was working there for he didn't tell me for who when I first met him. I said, "Would I like to go to dinner with the team that night?" So, I, very kind of him. I was completely complete novice. So I duly arrived in the restaurant at the hotel, and the team he was working for was a certain Giacomo Agostini. He was riding a Suzuki uh, <laughs> in those days. It was coming to the end of his career, and he had a 500 Suzuki as well as an MV. And so the first night I had dinner with Ago, 15 times world champion. <laughs> you can imagine, I thought I'd made it big time. I went to the circuit the, the day after, I was very, very nervous and didn't really know how to speak to people, but met Stuart Vant, the New Zealander who'd come over and made great friends with him and been great friends ever since. And there was a guy there in a massive great fur coat by the name of Phil Reed, nine times a world champion. He saw my motorcycle news jacket and said, oh, you're the new man from motorcycle news. Uh, uh, would you like to come to dinner tonight? Well, he was staying at the same hotel. So <laughs> second night, I was at dinner with Phil Reed. Same hotel. I think that was 24 world championships, is it, between them? Yeah. So uh, I, I was Jack's a lad. I, I knew everything about everything by then. <laughs> Went to the circuit on the Sunday morning. It was sleeting. It wasn't really snowing. It was... Not a great time of the year to go to Mizano. It's a big holiday resort on the Adriatic coast, but in the in the winter spring time, it's a bit bleak. <laughs> anyway, Ago decided he wouldn't ride, so they called the meeting off. Uh, without Ago, obviously, they knew that nobody would go to watch. So uh, I drove back to Milan, thought about it, staying in the hotel at the airport, and thought, well, there's a very good story here. Rang the Abner's the hotel we were standing at and got hold of Phil Reed, who called it Ago Pathetic and why couldn't we ride this and everything so I thought I was quitting here wrote the story Pathetic Ago accuses Reed 
and it made the, the front page. I don't think it was a front page headline, but it made the front page of Motorcycle News. I thought I knew everything about everything. <laughs> two two weeks later, uh, they decided they would run the meeting, but they run it ran it on the aerodrome at Modena, mm-hmm. which is uh, I think fifty miles, not as far as that, uh, northeast of uh, Misano. Uh, sorry, northeast of Bologna. So I duly went there. And when I arrived in the paddock, I, I saw Ago standing on a mound of earth overlooking the circuit. It was an aerodrome circuit, and he was reading motorcycle. <laughs> oh, no. And I, he signaled me over with his finger. He gave me the biggest bollocking you could ever imagine. I couldn't understand most of it. A lot of it was in Italian. But he was not happy that I hadn't spoken to him. Did he think that uh, uh, you should get two sides of the story, this, that, and everything else? He had a very frayed relationship with her. Phil Reed anyway from their MV days and he certainly didn't invite me out to dinner that night I can assure you and uh, that was the start of my, my, my career it taught me a good lesson actually yeah not to think you know everything and uh, to try and get two sides of a story yeah, I for the you know for the benefit of those who maybe not as clued up on history, that would be like being on your first weekend as a motorcycle news reporter, going for dinner with Valentino Rossi one night and Mark Marquez the next, wouldn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, it would be the equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what did Phil Reed one two five two fifty and five hundred world championships, and Ago had won three fifty and five hundred world championships, and Ago had won them on the four-stroke MV and the two-stroke Yamaha, yeah. Oh, yeah, they, they, they are still big names in the sport, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you manage to patch things up with Agostini? Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> much so. In fact, when I retired, he sent me a really nice message. And, uh, yeah, wow. where we go, and I'm absolutely fine now. I'm sure I'm not the first journalist. He's, he's uh, fallen out with very, very uh, uh, briefly. Uh, <laughs> I feel Reed, I still see uh, quite a lot now, and... Probably the most underrated rider in the history of the sport, Phil Reid. I mean, what he did was uh, unbelievable. The championships he won, and and he did it for Britain. Yet, uh, uh, I think a little bit because of his character. He's not the easiest person, and still isn't the easiest person perhaps to get on with. I've always got on well with Phil, but undoubtedly one of the truly great riders in the history of the sport. Oh no question. You think, look at his his statistics, and I think is he he probably was very clever at the time to sort of play the pantomime villain. It can, it, there's always a role for that. He knew how to upset uh, his uh, teammates, didn't he? And sadly, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the likes of Bill Ivey, who was such a fantastic rider as well, never really recovered from uh, his big falling out uh, with Phil Reed. Ago probably took it on the chin a little bit more and mm-hmm. gave it a, a, a little bit back as as. as did uh, Mike Hayward, although they, they were a little bit later on, they, they did uh, clash more at the TT when Hayward made his uh, comeback. <laughs> and you, you know, you've, you've you had the, the joy of spending time in, the, in both the Formula One and the MotoGP or Grand Prix paddocks. How do you, how do you compare these two? You know, they're both the premier categories of the two and four wheeled um you know formats of motorsport how did how did you compare them from your experiences very different uh i went to formula one thinking it would be extremely highbrow and uh, certainly on the media side this is this is over 20 years ago very well organized and i found in fact uh, it wasn't anything like as well organized or up-to-date media-wise as I thought it was going to be made a lot of friends in Formula 1 yeah there, there are people uh, you know it, 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 it is a different paddock but the same desires in there everybody the same with everybody with most people racing and winning and what is going on MotoGP is a much more friendly paddock it's a much bigger paddock because uh, the three classes classes of bike it, it, it's a much more friendly I'd say a more interesting uh place to be in and I certainly enjoyed being in the uh, I enjoyed being in both panels we had some great fun in Formula 1 uh, I think because we were uh, uh, didn't want to get involved too much in the politics uh, and the games that were played we, we could see it in a different way and I said certainly amongst the journalists and, and a lot of the teams certainly the Williams team 
we had some terrific fun there were some good people but my my roots and my, 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 the blood that flows through me really is uh, uh, Grand Prix motorcycle racing and, and MotoGP and to come back and get the opportunity to come back like a different dawn was, was remarkable I was so so lucky and you, you mentioned Dorner there. I mean, they've taken the sport from you know the, the you know, even the the initial branding of MotoGP to what it is now. I mean, you've seen that right that meteoric rise from the absolute grandstand seat. What have been the key factors that Dorna have, have kind of implemented to take the sport to this golden era that we've been enjoying the last five or six years or so? Yeah, they they have done a remarkable job, uh, like all companies that come in and rock the boat considerably so some people are, you know, are not their greatest fans but they <laughs> have done a truly remarkable job uh, on, on every side the the um, first of all on safety what mm-hmm. they've done on safety at the circuits and for the riders at the medical facilities and everything in that way they have done an amazing job the sport is always going to be dangerous yes it has mm-hmm. to be when you're racing 220 mile an hour motorcycles it's dangerous but they have done absolutely everything they can make the sport safer so i think that that's been a, a a a massive massive contribution they've made the coverage of the sport their television coverage is second to none and all the pictures you see what wherever you're watching Mm-hmm. whatever you're watching anywhere in the world those pictures come from Dorna they're yeah. not filmed by the television company yeah the, the the personal bits are but the actual racing is Dorna coverage and they're, they're, uh, they're, they've led the way even over Formula 1 for many many years uh, on uh, on everything they've done they've been so innovative uh, they've been so far forward thinking they, they, they've done a remarkable job there and they've spread the word of the sport of course throughout the world uh, because of that they've put the sport in so many different countries now I mean the Far East for instance now MotoGP is vast mm-hmm. you go to places like Malaysia where they drop Formula 1 uh, they sell out uh, all the time uh, Thailand I think they had crowds of approaching 250,000 at the Thailand Grand Prix the last, last couple of years they've made the sport truly international and uh, they, they have turned the sport on its head as I said when I first started we had 10 Grand Prix all in Europe and now suddenly uh, it, it, it's a completely different game I don't think they've ever lost the the, the true the, the, the true beliefs of this sport mm-hmm. it started all what 71 years ago uh, about racing against each other and I think that's the big advantage MotoGP has over Formula 1 at the moment it's very understandable 40 minutes flat out checkered flag mm-hmm. that's it isn't it Formula 1 I'll be honest with you I get muddled up now what's going on and I haven't got the faintest idea what's going on in the qualifying to be honest with you I find it so complicated and this that and everything else it's all about racing isn't it and straight race is what I think the public really want to see don't make it too complicated. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think also there, I will get on to rivalries in a second, but I think they also let the rival, they can control the balance of a kind of better rivalry very well. I've, I've Certainly from a fan's sitting on the sofa watching it, you've, obviously we've seen a lot of big controversy in the last five or ten years and but they, they, they sort of let it let it go to a point to the point where it's interesting to the fan, but not so out of control that the people that are writing the checks don't get too upset. I mean, that's quite a hard balance to strike, I would imagine. Yeah, we've been lucky. If we've had Valentino <laughs> Rossi, because he's uh, fallen out with Max Biaggi. I mean, those early battles. God, I think I remember the race at Suzuka where they, they, where they collided with each other going down that main straight. And then there was uh, the, the confrontation with Sete Chivinau when Valentino said he would never win another Grand Prix. <laughs> and, he, and he didn't. He didn't win another Grand Prix. Either. And then, of course, the, the classic, the Mark Marquez uh, business, starting with the press conference in Malaysia where uh, obviously I was hosting all the press conferences, completely corpus totally by surprise what Valentino was saying then the race itself then all the contrary and that race I, I, I've rarely known in any sport uh, perhaps Boca Juniors uh, versus uh, River Plate football once I went to in Argentina such wow, atmosphere rivalry 
fans with totally opposing views as that race in Valencia when it was Marquez and Rossi to decide the championship with everything had gone on. I've been very heavily involved in the Damon Hill, Michael Schumacher clash at Adelaide. It didn't have a patch, I tell you, on the interest on the, the Rossi Marquez battle in, in Valencia uh, that time round. It, it was it was staggering. And to be involved involved with it, but actually on the outside of it, it was very, very exciting indeed. And I, I loved every minute of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> was, it was interesting. I remember watching that race. And it, you talk about you know, what Dorna have done. I remember watching it on my phone in the taxi on the way to the airport. Funnily enough, for my first business trip to Asia and I was actually going, I was in Malaysia a week after it happened and watching it at 6 o'clock in the morning on my phone, I mean, talk about access but I am interesting, I came away from it, obviously incredibly exciting and the build up to it but I kind of came away coming, came away feeling a little bit almost a little bit flat for some for some reason, it was almost like a little bit of an, ant- it had almost been a, a climax and then an anti-climax you know, coming towards Valencia but what were your what were your memories of that day of that Sunday after the race? So. Uh, uh, the the build up was incredible. I think there was seven hundred journalists there. Many more wanted to come, but they couldn't fit them in. Every network was there. There was people flying in. Formula. I remember Mark Webber flying in with a crowd of Formula One ride drivers. Mm-hmm. They just had to watch the, the. There was extra police there because they thought there'd be crowd trouble. There wasn't any any crowd trouble. Mm-hmm. It, it was amazing. But of course, neither of them won the world championship, did they? It was no. Lorenzo that went on and won won the championship. And I think that made it a little bit flat as well, don't you? That I, I think we'd have liked to see Marquez or Rossi actually uh, take uh, take the title. That, that 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 didn't happen at, at, at the time. Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a special day also because Danny Kent. That's right. It almost yeah. went unnoticed. Un- 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 became the first British what world champion for God, how many years was it? Barry was nineteen seventy seven. This was yeah for thirty well, over thirty years to to win a world championship. So uh, that it was an amazing day because that Moto three race where Danny Kent just won the championship mm-hmm. uh, almost went unnoticed didn't it because of the uh, the, the Rossi Marquez uh, you've got to include Jorge Lorenzo battle uh, that came later on it, it really was a stunning day I was I, I remember being there we booked uh, we actually booked to, to go to the race thinking it was going to be Rossi's last how wrong were we but we, we, oh, we yeah. lucked out anyway yeah we booked it in about February or something but uh, um you know, also the other, you know, the one other race that particularly um, springs to mind is Estoril 2006, which I watched the other day, um, where Nicky Hayden, God bless him, you know, uh, in on the Repsol Honda, you know, looking like he could win the title and then gets knocked off by probably the safest rider in MotoGP, his teammate Danny Pedrosa. And and your your quote was just gold. Where the where the the, the shots of Nicky, I've been mean, the angriest man in the planet, as you said. And he says, no, you, you, for years, what was it like from from yourself from the commentary box? I mean, because it was almost like this sort of stunned silence. It was almost disbelief of what was appearing on on the picture. What was it like from your seat? You just couldn't believe it was happening. <laughs> uh, Danny Madrosa took out his teammate and seemingly the chance of winning the World Championship. I can I can see it like yesterday. <laughs> well, if I wanted to do the series, a couple of years later, I went down to the corner with Nicky and he was still angry. Then and to make Nicky Hayden angry, you had to do because he was the absolute uh, gentleman, friendly. Uh, it's not something you probably think of. Uh, Grand Prix motorcycle races. Uh, he was an absolute, good, such a good guy, Nicky Hayden. What happened to him was so sad, but he was mighty, mighty angry. And then the race itself, after they'd both gone down, uh, Kenny Roberts would have won the race, Kenny <laughs> Roberts Jr., and he thought the race was over a lot before it was. And of course, and Tony Elias went and won his only MotoGP race, didn't he? I mean, it just had everything, didn't it? It was. But I think we all went then, of course it was Valencia then, wasn't it? Thinking that Nicky Hayden had lost the chance. And uh, Nicky Hayden to win the championship with his dad Earl there. And I mean, that was, a, that was such a special day. Such a very, very special day. As I say, Earl Hayden, Nicky Hayden, they were, they were such good guys. And 
Yeah, I think if Valentino Rossi was going to lose the championship, my heart is sure he wouldn't want to lose the championship to anybody. Uh, I think Nicky would have been the man who said, well, fair enough, I'm going to lose it. Nicky Hayden, that, that, that's the guy I'd like to win it. I think every everyone to a man had such respect for Nicky Hayden because he's trying to trying to you'll be able to explain much better than I can to our listeners of just how nowadays how unusual his route to MotoGP was. I mean, just to give our listeners an idea of the the path that Nicky Hayden took to what you know, most people know him as the MotoGP World Champion, but not so long before that he was dirt track racing in the states. He was. I mean. There was a time started by Kenny Roberts in the, the late 70s. All you had to do was click your fingers, and American riders came over and stole everything. Yeah. Wayne Rainey, Kevin Swans, Eddie Lawson, just name them. There were so many of them, but that, that had dried up a little bit. So Nicky Hayden was uh, obviously riding in America, dirt tracking and in America. I think he had a couple of rides in the World Superbike, and then they wanted Honda wanted to promote motorcycling and sales in America. They brought him in to join uh, Valentino Rossi in, in the Repsol Honda team, which was a massive ask for him. And I, I, I remember Valentino telling me the first time I met uh, Nicky was at Tokyo Railway Station on a Monday morning when there was probably 25,000 people <laughs> in the concourse. Nicky and his dad Earl had never been uh, to Japan and then they just stood there and just went, my God, where are we going on here? <laughs> and uh, that first year, uh, it was the first... Uh, First of all, Earl thought you could perhaps drive to all the races. He didn't realise. I mean, they just didn't realise what a world championship was was about. And I remember going to Phillip Island and Dawn said, could you go with Nicky and Earl and drive them down from Melbourne to Phillip Island? Because they'd never been to Australia and they were driving on the left-hand side of the road and everything else. It was a totally new experience. The tracks, the championship, the opposition, the lifestyle and everything. But... The, um, they were such nice guys and they just got on with everybody and everybody just liked them so much and when he won that first Grand Prix at home in Laguna Seca wow. then Earl jumped on the back for the, the lap of honour and I think the whole paddock just thought yeah, that's, that is so, so special uh, yeah it, it was great being around them and what happened to Nicky oh, it's unthinkable it's unthinkable that he he would uh, die in, in, in that way but it's happened to others, haven't it? And El Nieto was killed in, in, in a similar accident, I think, on a scooter. And then, of course, just uh, should have celebrated his 80th birthday a couple of weeks ago. Mike Hale would, was killed in in a road accident. So mm-hmm. it's funny, these guys lay their lives on the, on the line. And then when they could retire, things like that happen. Right. Nicky, of course, wasn't retired. It's terribly ironic, isn't it? It's um, it's, 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 it's terrible. And it's, the thing that struck me with Nicky Hayden as well, almost a little bit like Mark Marquez in some way, is he's clearly, you know, I think everyone kind of warmed him because he's such such strong family values, such good kind of core values. And I see a lot of that in Marquez as well. Yeah. Enormous family values, obviously, with his brothers who were good racers, his mm-hmm. sister, his mum, and his dad Earl, who went everywhere with him, who mm-hmm. was just the most incredible guy you'd ever wish to meet. An evening with Earl telling you stories about the, the, they had a second hand car lot in uh, <laughs> America and the, the early dirt track days, everything, who was just, just sat and listened, and he was so funny. And Nicky and him were such a great bond together. Oh, special! Now, I want I want to talk about the doctor, Mister Rossi. I mean, oh, you've God. you've you've watched his entire career. In your opinion, what do you think his greatest season has been? Would you say? Oh golly! Oh, I, I think with, uh, without for me and others would discuss the first year, but when he came to Yamaha and won that uh, uh-huh. world championship on the Yamaha, because Yamaha were dead and buried, and uh, I think his greatest race victory, certainly for me, and I. I've commentated on every one of his uh, Premier Class victories, but one when I lost my voice at Laguna Seca. <laughs> beat Casey Stone. I was there, but I couldn't commentate. Golly, probably the best winner of them all, a lot of people would say. But mm-hmm. uh, Gavin Emmett and uh, John Hopkins did a fantastic job with me sitting there at the back, not being able to speak. But uh, that, the winning welcome when he won that first race on the Yamaha. And what a battle that was with uh, Biaggi. Biaggi on the Honda, Rossi on the Yamaha, a complete swap of allegiances. And for Rossi to beat him on, uh, I know Yamaha was struggling, was amazing. And I can 
see the end of the race now when he just stopped yeah uh, by the Armco and just kissed the number 46 and then burst into tears it was an amazing amazing season and an amazing racing it shook everybody didn't it made them realize just how talented this guy was he is probably a, a, as a single person he's made the biggest impact on the sport in in, in the history of a grand prix motorcycle racing for for his obviously his riding ability but everything else about him his personality just the way he is and uh, he has put the sport from Barry Sheen used to say put the sport from the back pages to the front pages he, he certainly did that mm. it was almost like a Colin McRae and rallying kind of almost superhuman um, aura around them isn't there he's just oh. so well thought of yeah, absolute god and <laughs> still is to many many people and rightly so and here we go he's still he said to me when I uh, when I stopped, oh, I'm not going to be the oldest man in the uh, Grand Prix paddock now. I said, yeah, but uh, he's still carrying on. I see. Now he looks like he's going to do 2021 on, on a Patronus Yamaha, and I think he's probably going. To, but he just loves racing motorcycles, and I think he loves the life. Uh, yeah. And everything that goes with it. Yeah, I mean, what's he's your? Still quick, isn't he? <laughs> he certainly is. I think it was also it, 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 what we're seeing at the moment. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when he came back to Yamaha after Ducati, after the Ducati time, and you know it, it it just proves that you just never forget as long as you're fit and healthy. You just, you just do not forget how to ride at that level. I don't think. No, I think you're absolutely right, and obviously he's he rode at the very 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 highest level, and. He, He's still there. If he win a Grand Prix, I think I think the circumstances would have to be very much uh, in his favour him mm-hmm. to win a Grand Prix now. He was unlucky, wasn't he? He should have won in Malaysia a, a couple of years back mm-hmm. when his uh, stepbrother had won the Moto2 race as well and he was leading. I think he crashed five, six laps from the end in Malaysia at that first corner. That, that would have been fantastic for him to do that. It would have been. What, what's your, you, you've obviously travelled the world with him I mean, what's what's been your favourite experience with with Valentino? Oh golly, there's uh, many, many, many of them. Uh, he was amazing. I did lots of public appearances and things with Valentino. He hated doing them. He yeah. Didn't like mm-hmm. it because it was hard for him. But the moment he arrived and he switched on, he was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I remember one of the first times uh, I did anything with him. Uh, we were promoting the sport in Britain also for Dorna. That, that when I first started in 2000, I think we had 18,500 fans at Donington. Mm-hmm. And of course, World Superbikes, Brands Hatch, two race, two, I think they had two separate meetings there. Absolutely jumped to the rafters. Carl Fogarty winning everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the job was, and then Rossi came onto the scene, and I think 2001, after uh, he came to London. He told everybody he was living in London, didn't he, for tax reasons. Yeah. I only actually found out later he had a place in London, but he used to fly into Gatwick uh, from uh, Bologna, come up on the Gatwick Express, go in the house, and I'd go and pick him up. And he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah. And we went to the London Eye, I remember. did a load of pictures, and he did a lot of stuff. Then we would go to the BBC studios at the White City. Uccio, his great mate, was in the car, and they were discussing... I didn't know at the time because they were speaking and laughing so much in Italian. They had a Hawaiian fan. They'd find a couple of fans in Hawaii. So they decided they would invite their fan over from Hawaii to watch the race at Magello. They then started laughing and joking and they decided then they'd do the whole team livery in uh, Hawaii shirts and the leathers, the bike and everything else, which they did. Then they had a blow-up swimming pool on the side of the track uh, with <laughs> dummy um, palm trees in it, which they did as well. And they were discussing all this in the taxi and they were crying with laughter. It was like school kids planning their, their prom concert, their prom yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> term thing. It really was. That uh, was amazing. So, yeah, uh, I, I've seen Valentino in Malaysia that time uh, when he wouldn't come to the press conference and I've seen him uh, so so many times and uh, brilliant guy to have at the press conferences after a race in particular you'd just say well Valentino what about the race and he would go I didn't have the sound of the word he would know from beginning to end exactly what happened from the moment the flag dropped when I started off yeah I thought F this and F that because I wasn't quite on the play then I'd catch up he'd just let him go finish and that was it yeah yeah, an amazing sportsman, truly amazing, on and off the track, and uh, it's always been very, very uh, good to me. 
No, and he's mind you, he has landed you in a couple of times though. And of course, in your role is the when you were hosting all the the pre-event oh. press conferences, he was the master of the press conference bombshell, wasn't he? I was. <laughs> Let's be honest, those are pre-event press conferences could be a bit mundane. Yeah. And everybody knew that. You have them, one for, for more for the local media probably than anybody else, because that's when they get the chance to, 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 to meet the riders. And the riders would say, yeah, well, we like Malaysia, we're going to do this. And there's two in Malaysia with Valentino. I, I, there's three I remember, but not one's not with uh, Valentino, Casey Stoner. But uh, Valentino, there was the one in Malaysia after... We've been to Qatar and there was this the, the, the sweeping incident when he had yes. to start from the back of the mm-hmm. grid and mm-hmm. Sete Giovinazzi's team had uh, complained and Valentin never, never forgot that. So we went to, and at that time he had the habit of turning up late for the press conferences. So we started, we used to start them in the end because he was turning up late without him. So we, we sat there and said, I remember asking Sete, what happened in Qatar? I said, oh, that's all forgotten now. Um, yeah, it's under the water under the bridge. We get on with the racing. The Valentino then arrived wearing a big pair of dark glasses. So I asked him the same question. He said, it's not forgetting. I will never forget. So I said, hey, will never win another Grand Prix. And he didn't. <laughs> there was the one. And then, of course, uh, Malaysia, when we'd come from Australia, it'd been that amazing race. Yeah. Everybody was buzzing. And to be honest, by the time we got to Malaysia, we'd been to Japan and Australia. We were all a bit, a little bit uh, weary by then. And so it was always nice getting to Malaysia. The press conference was ticking along nicely. And suddenly, he just launched into Mark Marquez. Unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, I mean, real personal attack. And at first, I think we all thought he was joking. The, the media thought he was joking. But then he, he produced these stats about that he, he deliberately slowed the race up. And, and Mark said, well, I was a fan of yours. I had pictures on the wall. I don't believe that. Oh, it was. I, I, it was staggering. And so it went so mundane. The other one, I've got to tell you, Le Mans. Uh, yes. Just before the press conference started... Uh, Receptor was the uh, Repsol Honda PR man said, Can we have a word? Well, me and Casey have a word with you. So we won't have a word. And uh, they said, We'd like to start the press conference with an announcement from Casey. Uh, you know, I thought, well, I've got a bit of news here. That would probably be ideal. So everybody in the came, everybody, Casey, I said, Well, Casey's going to make an announcement before start the press conference. And I thought Casey was going to say, I've renewed my contract from this time. Mm-hmm. He just said, I'm retiring. And quitted at the end of me for World GP. And I remember Valentino Rossi was sat there with his mouth open, which didn't happen very often, did it? No. <laughs> Nobody could believe it. It was, and when he finished, there was absolute silence. Nobody said a word for about uh, 20, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and then obviously the questions flowed. So they weren't always that mundane. Uh, 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 a lot of them were. Yeah. <laughs> and do you do you think that your Sepang twenty fifteen when Rossi did unleash that attack? Would you agree that that was at the point where that was a, a, what turned out to be in hindsight a very um, critical move for him actually not claiming the championship because it clearly riled Marquez up much much more I, to my, from my eyes. I I honestly think uh Valentino totally misread the situation yeah. and thought you could launch that sort of attack into Marquez and it would affect him. Well, it did affect him, but it affected <laughs> him in the opposite way in many ways, didn't it? Just made him more determined. I think he did underestimate uh, Marquez's. Uh, you don't ride the way Marquez does and win world championships the way so having that, that inbuilt grit to you, and he, he certainly had it. And I think in many ways, yes, it, it, it had a massive contribution to uh, him losing the championship. I'll never forget, uh, we used to fly home from Malaysia on the, on the Sunday night, and we were in the, the lounge. Oh, I think we are having a lunch, uh, dinner in the hotel restaurant, the big hotel near the airport. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there was Ross's camp, Yamaha, quiet and really good. And Lorenzo's, not, not uh, crowing, but really, really pleased. They, they realised that Ross's team realised they'd lost the world championship yeah. that day. Lorenzo realised that he held solid. Nobody could hold solid better than him. That he would win the title. It, it was it was it was an amazing trip from Malaysia from Malaysia. Starting with that incredible race at Phillip Island uh, mm-hmm. the week before. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely incredible. 
year. I think it's the greatest season ever uh, in in MotoGP. I, I, I really do. Talk, tell me about Casey Stoner. You know, he's probably one of the most misunderstood characters. Uh, no, no question, one of the best racers ever. What was your What was your experiences with with Casey? I always gone on great with Casey because mm-hmm. uh, I remember when he came in from Australia and rode in the British Championships and then started riding the Grand Prix. Charles Davis, who I was uh, helping a, a great deal in the, the, those early days because he was riding in the Grand Prix, was a great friend and the families were great friends. So I got to know Casey quite well. He, yeah, he, he was. Uh, how you really describe Casey but uh, everything in his life had been focused on on racing his mm-hmm. family you know, moved from Australia to live in a caravan in England so he could focus on racing uh, and uh, you know, it, was, it was quite a volatile relationship with his father they fell out uh, if, he, if he didn't win races mm-hmm. but uh, when Casey won the championship on the Ducati I think we saw what an incredible rider he, he was mm-hmm. and uh, yeah uh, I, I don't know about underwriting. My, my, my friends, all ex TT riders or Manx Grand Prix riders, always went, always said, "Ah, oh, Casey Stoner is this, that, and everything else." And we went to they went to Silverstone in that wet race that he won. And I remember them coming back. They all said, "Oh my God!" Over they had never seen anybody ride a motorcycle in the wet like Casey Stoner did that day when he won the British Grand Prix. And uh, to see Casey in action at Phillip Island on that turn three, that fast left hand oh. down the smoke and off the tires it's a case it's a stone a corner no, isn't it? now that, that's worth your, your airfare just to go to to uh, you're worth your airfare going to Philip Island anyway but see stone around there oh extraordinary talent I think he just had enough I think his whole life had been focused on him racing motorcycles and winning the world championship he did it he was a family man uh, and he decided he'd had enough and uh, home he went you know, very happy and I, I haven't seen him recently but when I was still traveling, I used to see Casey seem very content uh, and I'm very happy with life. He didn't have to prove anything to anybody. He's up there with the, the real greats. Oh, no question about it. I think he's he probably is. He was just almost unfortunate to have been around in the Rossi era. I think both Lorenzo and Lorenzo and Marquez, both and Stoner, all suffered from if if you if you square up to Rossi and beat him, you you are gonna alienate yeah, a large proportion of the viewership aren't you yeah, that's, that's exactly right <laughs> he, he, he stood up to him and when, obviously when he switched to Ducati then he took him out Rossi took him out in Jerez wasn't it yes oh god Rossi went down pit lane to uh, uh, to apologise yeah and he and said I think your desire outweighed your ability didn't he Casey yeah <laughs> oh, well, you got to be pretty prized to do that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But uh, Casey knew he had it. Casey knew that he was going to win that championship. And uh, Rossi knew that, uh, I mean, going to Ducati, it should have been the dream, shouldn't it? The Italian dream. But it, 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 just, it just didn't work, work out for him to come back, though, and, and ride the Yamaha the way he did was, was incredible. I think that, that that definitely put the put the questions to bed. I mean, in your time in the paddock, Nick. I mean, which or it's maybe a two part question. Can you get close to any of the riders, and if so, which of the riders did you become close with in your time in the paddock? Yeah, I'm very careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some journalists, uh, it's always been the case, want to be great friends with the riders. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same with any sport. I don't think it's just motorcycle racing. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to be careful uh, because uh, you're, 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 the, you're the messenger and you, you've got a job to do. And sometimes uh, sometimes you have to say or do things that might not please them. I was very close to Barry Sheen, who really, really helped me in my, my career. Got uh, uh, Channel 9 in Australia gave me exclusive interview after he crashed at Silverton mm-hmm. many many ways and Barry expected uh, <laughs> he expected favours back <laughs> he had to do yeah, right things and, uh, yeah yeah. Barry not going to appear at Cam- Sheen not going to appear at Camel Park put that in Nicholas he used to say put that in because then we get more money and, yeah, and sometimes and, uh, that, 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 that had to be done uh, I suppose the writer I, I, I I got. I was close and uh, friends with all the riders, but I won't say uh, close friends with all the riders. Um, 
Bradley Smith is probably a different story because Bradley's an Oxford boy from what I am. Mm-hmm. And Alan, Alan, his dad, came and met me at the local pub uh, in the garden one day and said they wanted to go Grand Prix racing. So I have followed Bradley's career very, very closely and made him quite a, a hero in, the, in this part of the world with his column and on the radio and everything else. I did follow his career. I think it's the, the, the anniversary of this weekend, 11 years ago, that he won his first Grand Prix when he won that race here in a red. So I was very, very close to, 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 to Bradley, to, to be honest with you. That was probably for, for different reasons, because I'd seen him grow up and everything else. But I got on well with well, 95% of the riders I've got on really well with. I've really fallen out uh, with, with, with many of them. Some are more difficult to deal with than others and that, that, that's the way they are their job is to race motorcycles yes and mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes uh, and certainly in the early days they, they weren't too keen on doing media stuff because uh, you didn't do a lot of that in those days uh, Kenny could be difficult but actually uh, I, I find him very helpful Eddie Lawson could be difficult but when he came to ride that one year with Rothman, Rothman's Honda he was absolutely fantastic so yeah yeah. Oh. Uh, you learn when to to, to push in or not and uh, I think I wrote a piece in the book about Jan Ackroyd surely the toughest hardest rider you'd ever ever wish to meet in the world a, a typical privateer and he was going to win the 350 world championship which was in, would have been in, in well he did win it in the end an incredible uh, performance by him it was 1980 and we went to the Czech Republic on the old Bruno circuit again which was an amazing experience to go there and he broke down when he was lying in second place to Tony Mang, and if he'd have finished second, he'd have won the championship. And I remember he came into the pits, and nobody said a word because he had quite a reputation, John. And I straight in, of course, what happened, and then he gave me such a mouthful, I'll never forget. I thought, yeah, that, that's the way to learn. And the final round was at the Nurburgring two weeks later. As I drove in the paddock, he was there waiting, and he signaled over and he apologised, said I should have done that. And they said how much I thought it was fun. And he went on to put on. One of the greatest rides I've ever seen. He won that 350cc race, the last ever race at the Nurburgring. It was on the old road circuit. Wow. To beat Tony Mann to win the championship for all. That was something very, very. And, uh, he there was he was never, never, never going to lose that race, on And he was a, a tough man, a good man as well, and a true world champion. Oh, I can imagine. And in 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 the paddock, you know, putting riders aside, you know, who have been the best paddock pals, either to you know have a pint with or sit next to on a flight? Who who oh, who have they been? I've got uh, I've got so many. Uh, Ian Mackay, who I met that very first time in 1976, we've been friends ever since, and he was the media manager for for the Honda team, and mm. we set up our own company and around the Rothmans Honda account and everything. I've been, Mac and I are great friends. He taught me about supporting Celtic uh, <laughs> and football. Mac and I uh, have been enormous. But, but there's, a, there's a, a, a terrific band of people. That some that from the very early days that are still there, journalists, Han Van Luzen, Gunter Wiesinger. Uh, John Brown at Motorcycle News had an enormous influence on, on me and he, we were such good friends and he taught me everything about travelling on and off the track. <laughs> uh, being a journalist in the late 70s is just so different now to being a journalist as it is being a rider because in those days it was all about finding your telephone and phoning the copy through for hours and having a drink and it was, it was, a, it was a different world. Uh, but uh, still getting your copy done on time, still doing things like that is still important. But of course, you can do it in about a second now. And those that was different. So I've had a lot of very, very close friends, and still hear from a lot of them, uh, and still re- remain very good friends uh, uh, with them. But it's uh, times change. Christopher Mullen said to me when uh, uh, Donna decided and it was time for it to, to, to the commentators to come down. He said, "Nick, you've got to remember one thing." Uh, Life never remains the same forever, and he's absolutely right. And uh, Chris himself, of course, won a, uh, a Grand Prix, then, then, then moved on to, to commentary uh, and what have you. For me, you know, there's a lot of very talented young people coming through, and that's the way it should be. And I just hope they get the same opportunities to do what I did. And uh, But when you see those opportunities, you've got to grasp them, and you've got to be prepared. 
And when I went to, just one more story, just when I went to my second news, I was distribution manager for the local newspaper. I was doing the football for Radio Oxford. I was uh, earning good money. Uh, when I went to my second news, one, I had to sell my motorbike. Two, I had to sell my house. Yep. Do you know, I didn't give it a thought. To go and work for motorcycle news, that was what I was going to do. And that, that's what I did. But people have to remember, I think it's like riders. So people just, certainly in the, in the Sheen era, I think people thought you just put a name on the side of a van. Uh, were a bit flamboyant and that was it uh, there's a lot more to it than that Yeah, you've got to have the talent to ride and you've got to be prepared to make massive sacrifices as you said, family sacrifices if you're going to do uh, what I've done I'm lucky that I had the people to support me to do it it's, it's interesting what you say. It's actually it's 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 almost spooky what you're saying about the you know to get that opportunity to go and work for MCN. You know, selling your beloved motorcycle and stuff like that. I um you know I about ooh, about eighteen months ago I bought my dream car. I bought a Lotus Exige, and right. yeah, I sold my whole whiskey collection and I just went for it. And uh, I had an amazing you know twelve months or so with that car. And once I you know I had the, the first couple of months of you know, setting out my goal to, to get into to, to becoming a professional commentator, I thought, well, I've got to get out and shake hands because nobody knows who I am, so I've got to get out and, and get my get my face out there. And, of course, there's a cost. So, again, you know, a lot of people are going, are you mad? You sold your, sold your Lotus. You love that car. I said, yeah, but it's, like you say, you don't even think about it when it's a, when it's a, no, a, a goal is so much more powerful than that material, you know, possession, I guess. No, like you say, you make your own luck. I mean, in, from a commentary aspect, I mean, how do you? What were? What did you? You do to prepare for each each race in in the sport? Oh, we did a, 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 a lot of homework. Mm-hmm. I got to say, the modern day commentators do an, a massive amount of homework. Mm-hmm. Full marks to the the Greg Haynes and people like that. Uh, they 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 honestly they they their 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 preparatory work is, is amazing. I think you've got all up the facts and figures there. But well, the great thing about commentary is you don't know what's going to happen. Yes. And it comes out the mouth just automatically <laughs> as you're saying what you see. And, uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not, not so good. But uh, in my case, it, it, it just bumbles out because <laughs> you're saying what you see. Yeah, you back it up with facts and figures, but really, yeah, which is, which are nice, but it's when... Nicky Hayden gets taken down by Danny Pedrosa. It, it, it's uh, when these things happen. Is it, it? It's how you how, how you go about it. And I don't think, in some ways, you've got any control over that. It, it just just let it go. Yes. And did you ever review races? Do you ever watch them back with your commentary? Did yeah, you? I did. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, I'm quite strange. Yeah, yeah. For, for to be critical, I did. But I actually watch them and listen to me. I, sometimes I wasn't too keen, and I'm <laughs> still a little bit like that because it's, it's funny. There's been a lot of my races on recently because they've run out of material. There's <laughs> <laughs> no racing, but I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't watched them. No, no. I don't. It, it's, it's, yeah. It, I, I find it difficult still after two, two and a half years. Yeah, not not being heavily involved. I'll be. Be, I'll be honest with you, yeah. I'm getting better and better, but I still find it very, very hard. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I do watch the races, but, uh, yeah, not, not, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, sometimes I listen to the football commentaries, again, to be critical more, yes. more, mm-hmm. more than, mm-hmm. than everything else. And, of course, when you listen back, you don't like it sometimes. You, oh, God, what did I, oh, no, I should have seen that, I should have, but it's... Great thing about commentating, it's going on in front of you. There's, there's no you know, the comebacks. You've just got to say it if you're doing it live. Yeah. Obviously, if you're doing commentaries, and I've done a lot of commentaries where you can stop and go back. That, that, that's. Uh, but then you have to do not have to make it too obvious that, that you actually know what's happened. Yes, you know, exactly. Try make it exciting and a difference. A great difference between doing radio and television commentary. Radio, obviously, you talk a great deal more. When I first did the television certainly for Dawn I spoke too much 
because I was still doing radio stuff. But mm-hmm. You learn to need gaps, and sometimes those gaps can be absolutely crucial to 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 what you're doing. And never get Dylan Gray told me he said he thought it was great. It was it was uh, awesome, and it was pouring with rain. Program started, music and everything. They they on it went. They just showed the rain pouring down, and all I said for. 20 seconds, 25 seconds at the start of the program was, oh dear. That's all I said, apparently, and he thought that was good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that was what. those things, it, it just happened, yeah. <laughs> that was what struck me watching back. I watched the Estoril race back yesterday, and it, yeah. that was what, what did struck me, strike me a lot was, was the was was the pauses. Um, and yeah, you, you, it, it, it was one of those moments where I think everybody watching. Needed that moment to go. Yeah, have I just seen that happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, yeah that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> and did you take reference from any other commentators? Was there any other commentators uh, that you watched and thought, "Oh, I quite like what they're doing," or not? Yeah, I don't have it so much on on, on the on, on the motorcycling. Yeah, Murray Walker, obviously, and mm-hmm. I got to know Murray when I was doing Formula One. I knew Murray for bikes because his great love, of course, is bikes much yes. more than cars. But. Uh, Formula One, so I, I watched uh, Murray a lot. Uh, certainly, football-wise, yeah, Peter Jones, people like in the early radio days, I listened to them, I thought were absolutely uh, fantastic. And later on, there were, of course, the likes of uh, Toby Moody and Julian Ryder, and mm-hmm. I'd watch and listen to them. They were all very, very competent indeed, but I think I probably had my own style of my own accent a little bit I think I meant a little bit my own way which yeah, uh, seemed to be alright I think that's what so many people love that, that, that this distinctive tone you know how did you you know obviously when you're in when so many people are watching the broadcast and nowadays with the people can give an instant worldwide opinion via social media how do you or how did you deal with both praise and criticism when it came in? You know, how because for, for me, me personally, I always find critiques sometimes quite difficult to take. How how did you deal with with both praise and criticism? I tried not to look at the praise or the criticism too much. To yes, yeah, mm-hmm. we all like praise. Don't, 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 don't kill ourselves. We all like it, but I tended not to look too much. Uh, if somebody. Who I was working with, or, or Dawn, or something, they said they weren't happy about that, this, that, and everything else. I would listen, but I think you have to be very, very careful. One, the praise, and we all like looking at social media and looking at praise and uh, thinking, feeling good, but uh, the criticism. So I, I honestly try not to get too involved in it. And yeah, there's certain things people can advise you on, but you know deep down, you know. I think you do. Yes. If you've done a good job that day, or something, there were some days you think no, it wasn't quite so good. And sometimes I'd listen back and think no. And other times I think, oh, you're absolutely spot on there. I, I, I like that. It, it's very hard. We, we, human nature, isn't it, to, to to soak up the praise and to try and not read too much of the criticism. Uh, I think my advice is not to take too much notice of both, but do take criticism from people who know. Uh, you know what the, what what they're talking about because mm-hmm. it, it, it does help you. And, yeah, I've, I, I've learned over the years. Certainly, when I was working for the BBC, the radio, that you'd get criticism and people would say things to you, and I would certainly listen to them because they, they they knew what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, looking forward then in the sport, you know, MotoGP. Here we are in twenty twenty. Who do you think? Who do you see coming up? If there is anyone who you think can take the fight to Mark Marquez, would you say? I suppose we look at this year and it could be seven, eight races we, we, we really don't know mm-hmm. I mean Quattararo I think was a sensation I remember Fabio when he rode at Le Mans when he was winning the the, the, the national the, 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 the junior championship mm-hmm. and having to try and interview he couldn't speak English I couldn't speak much French and then coming into the Moto3 class when he thought he was going to be sensational and he didn't go the way he wanted then into Moto2 uh, and then going to the Petronas team and I'm thinking well yeah I think he always had the talent but boy what a season he's had I, I, he's got to win a race and I, I think if he could be a threat this year uh, I, I think that would be tough I think he'd win some races I think Maverick Vinales uh, can be very strong indeed I, I, I rate him very highly as a rider obviously uh, it, 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 there's a bit of inconsistency there 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, he's got got to try and iron out. Ducati seems to have a few problems at the moment, don't they? And uh, as Dobby Pete now have the team Pete. So no, I was very disappointed last year after he really pushed Marcus so so close. So I think Quattararo, I would say, I think could push him. But I think if anybody's going to really push him hard, as far as the championship goes, I think it would probably be Vinales. Uh huh. So, but it's got all got to click together, of course, with with Yamaha as well, isn't it? Of course, yeah, with Maverick, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Marquez is right up there. Yeah. Uh, all my experience. I, I haven't seen many better riders than Mark Marcus. I think he is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And the way he rides a motorcycle, I don't think it's almost like Kenny Roberts when he came into Europe. Everybody was like, Whoa. what is this guy doing? Or is this a complete star we've never seen? Marcus, in some ways, has even gone, well, he has he's gone beyond that now. I think he is, he is amazing. And I think he's going to take a massive amount of beating. And do you subscribe? I know some have have this view, but do you subscribe to the view that he would need to ride and win championships with another manufacturer to be truly the best? Uh, I'm not sure if he does, to be honest. I don't think he does. I think it would be great if he could. Do you know what I'd like to see him do, and it's never going to happen, is ride Motor 2 and Motor GP. Right? <laughs> do like a Spencer, what, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't. It's not going to happen. He can't do it. It's against the rules. And but, and it's not like when Freddie did it, and uh, uh, there was some far less races, and that almost finished Freddie's. But it didn't really finish Freddie's career because he never won, never finished on the podium again, did he? I think mm-hmm. mentally and physically, it absolutely destroyed him. But uh, I'd love to have seen him do that, and I think he's a rider that could have done it. Yeah, but why should he swap? Uh, he, he is. I don't think the results would be much different, to be honest. No, I, I, I don't. I, I don't. Uh, I suppose him going to Ducati would be amazing. Wouldn't be? I think mm-hmm. that's the one, the one team that would, would, would be amazing. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think he's very happy where he is, and they're very successful. No, I, I, I'd love to see it, but uh, I'm not a person that thinks that uh, just to, to emphasise his greatness, he, he would have to do it. Always one motive. To, one two five, motor two. Sorry, motor yeah, one two five world championship wasn't he one? No, sorry, motor three world championship were motor two, motor GP, I think, yeah. Uh, you gotta be special to do all that, I think. Yeah, it's 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 just extra to have eight under his belt at his age is just it's mind blowing, isn't it? It's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the way he rides a motorcycle, he's bravery, he's tough, he takes a knock, he takes everything that's thrown at him. Very, uh, he's, he's a tough boy. He is, and it's and the thing that the thing I've seen in the last couple of seasons is it actually hasn't been conducive to as exciting racing. But that's not his job. But you know, I, I find he's he's now got the tactical brain. You watch him; he very rarely leads a race until the last quarter or the last, even the last fifth of the race, and and then he just makes his move, and he's just got that pace in his pocket, and you you see him just. It doesn't make for the most exciting races for the spectator, but like I say, it's not it's not his his job. But I think now he's no, just no, this he's complete package now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's stepped up to a level that the other riders can't match. Yeah, uh, and uh, he can control races in a very similar way to way Valentino controlled races uh, in that that that, that mid uh, that mid term when he when, when he was winning everything. He could win races from anywhere he liked, couldn't he? And I think Mark. I think the opposition's probably a bit tougher now. Mark can't quite do that, like start from last place in a <laughs> GP race and, mm-hmm. uh, and when he obviously did it in, in the other classes. But I think he has a distinct advantage over everybody at the moment. I think he's gone up that extra level, which the other riders haven't matched yet. Yes, no, no I, I completely agree. Nick, it's, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you and hearing about your experiences in the sport. Um, before I let you go, I have one more question. What advice would you give to this budding commentator here? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very different game to when I started. So it, it, it's hard. I think doing what you're doing, doing podcasts and uh, just trying to get your name around, yeah. I, I think, a little bit. Uh, I, I think it, it, it's mighty important. It's a, it's a very small market, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that's the mm-hmm. trouble. We're looking at Eurosport, we're looking at BT Sport, 
uh, and you're looking at Dorna, really. That, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's the, the, the people are looking for. But I, I think you've got to push your name your name on. You've got to prepare some uh, draft stuff. You've got to, to prepare uh, stuff to send to people. Mm-hmm. That's really important. And push, push, push. And when the opportunity comes, grab it with both hands. That's what you've got to do. And be prepared to do some pretty minor things to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might just say, "Oh, we need a voiceover for Scarborough, or we need a, a, a race in Ireland, or something." And you've got to say, "Yeah, I'll come down to London and I'll do it." Yeah, that's what you. I think that's what. Yeah, that's how you start. Mm-hmm. I started making the tea and reading the football results at uh, the, the radio station, and uh, that, that, that's that's how it starts. And doing uh, the local clubs going to do the, the the tannoy system at the North Gloucestershire meetings at uh, places. Uh, how I started without a doubt local radio was helpful I, I don't quite know how helpful that is in these days if you've got a rider in your local area is to do stuff with them and get your name uh, out and about on, on local radio well I had the privilege I had the privilege of going round just round the corner is Rory Skinner's garage if you remember oh, you Rory know. yeah so I went round to see him and his dad Mike and had a chat with them uh, and uh, what a, what an amazing young man you know um, yeah yeah, it's it's bizarre asking an eighteen-year-old if he misses racing two strokes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <good> idea. <laughs> Which but he did. Do, you know, do a cut to that, and uh, what's it? This local radio station. There must be local radio stations for him. There is. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's I think the, 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 the way to do it. Candy. Sorry, that's a candy bar. Candy <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, Nick, thank you so so much for oh, for no, sparing the time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and you know, good luck with everything. Thank you, and I must say, your you, advice just just let me know. Well, that's very kind, and I must I'm say, glad you enjoyed the audio book. I, I enjoyed doing it. Yeah. Oh, it was, and it was, you know, because I've I listen to audiobooks on a regular basis, and it, having having you know the author read an audiobook makes the world a difference. I think. Oh, good. Yeah, so no, I re- thoroughly enjoyed it, and must say you're 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 much missed on the the MotoGP airwaves. Ah, but... that's very kind. <laughs> that's, I assure you, I I miss it an enormous amount as well. But that's life. That's, yeah, that, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, en- enjoy the rest of the the, the time at I home and the rest. And... And good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Nick. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Peter. Cheers Bye-bye. now.